Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Here, Here comes the binge. binge. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Binge Year in Review. This is Jason Leroy. My name is Rebecca Olarte, and today we're going to count down the 10 best and the five worst movies of 2015. We may have just started this podcast about two months ago, but Jason's been seeing movies all year. And he's ready, he's fired up, and you are going about to be assaulted with his opinions. Deal with it. Should we dive in? Let's dive in. So first question, are these in uh, a specific order? So the, the best movies are ranked 1 to 10. And then the worst movies um, are in alphabetical order because I didn't want to like rank them by awfulness. Right. And also the way that I qualify something for the worst list is not that it's actually like one of the worst movies of the year because I feel like usually that's like a... It's just, those are just sad, un- incompetent, low-budgeted movies. Right. Um, these are movies that, like, had potential for whatever reason and were just, like, and just fucked up badly. Okay. All right. So this is, they're like, uh, like a, the butterface of movies. <laughs> is that what a butterface is? I don't know. Someone who has a lot of potential? Isn't it more like, um, no, maybe it, is, it, is, it what a, is it what Clueless would call a Monet? Ah, uh, yes, maybe, yeah, like, like a like from Monet. a distance, they look great, but up close, it's just a big mess. Yes, exactly. So that's what these movies are. Movies that should have been Baldwin's and Betty's, but were actually, indeed, Monet's. So we're going to start off with the best. Number 10 is Spy. Spy. So Spy, of course, being uh, the Melissa McCarthy action comedy directed by Paul Feig, uh, reuniting after the two previously made Bridesmaids and The Heat together. And I feel they're like maybe my favorite partnership in cinema right now is Paul Feig and Melissa McCarthy. I think they can do no wrong together. Uh, Spy was the best comedy of the year. Uh, certainly the best studio Sorry, comedy. Sorry, Room. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I laughed a lot during Room. But <laughs> it was... you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> the new record for how quickly you'd call me an asshole in one of these. Uh, Spy was just a really flawless, hilarious uh, action comedy with per- terrific performances from Melissa McCarthy, who kind of plays down a little in this one. Uh, you know, common criticism okay. that she has gotten since she rocketed to fame is that she always does the same kind of over-the-top shtick in every movie. Mm-hmm. And this one, she she dials it down a little. And then when she does hit that level of intensity, it's within, it's like a construct within the character. Because, like, she is playing a character who's now playing a character who's like a Melissa McCarthy character. Okay. Um, Rose Byrne is a goddamn genius in this movie, uh, playing the villain role. Um, she has, like, my favorite line reading of the year. Uh and whenever they are on an airplane together, Melissa McCarthy says a dumb thing, and Rose Burns says, "What a goddamn stupid fucking retarded toast!" <laughs> it just gets me. It gets me every time. <laughs> um, it plays in my head all the time. I should make it my ringtone. Um, <laughs> this was this was a good year. Oh, that's my mom calling. <laughs> oh, there she is. Um, this was a really good year for like lunkhead dummy guys mm-hmm. being unexpectedly funny. In female-driven uh, comedies, because in Trainwreck, we had John Cena. Right. Oh, and, yeah. And to a much lesser extent, in my opinion, Lauren James, who I did, Wait, not, did, who? Not, did not think he was funny. Who? <laughs> Sorry. Who? I don't. I know. It's hard to... It's no, hard no. To, just can you say it again? LeBron James. Oh, I thought you said LeBron James? No, I didn't say LeBron. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> not that off the grid <laughs> uh, when it comes to sports. But no, um... Yeah, so John Cena and, to a lesser degree, LeBron James were were very funny in Trainwreck. Mm-hmm. And in Spy, we have Jason Statham, who, oh, really? out of the blue, was just, like, 
almost walked off with the movie was just like in just like very much making jokes at the expense of his own over the top masculine image um so yeah spy i love this movie and uh and that's why it's my number 10 i feel like this would be one of the movies where you know you say like why you want to do the podcast or why you want to review movies is uh you know bringing attention to movies that i would normally see this and say absolutely not this looks really? like fucking nonsense why i just think it's I, it just looks like it's so like lowbrow and oh. not lowbrow that makes me sound like an asshole yeah well uh well no, no. <laughs> well walks like a duck and <laughs> Talk shit like a duck, then. <laughs> Quack. <laughs> um, I will definitely give this a chance now. Good. Well, I mean, Paul Feig is is the same guy who's also doing the female Ghostbusters. Right. I mean, right. This, this very excited for that. This is. I mean, this is a guy whose whose work it has been remarkable. I mean, he did Freaks and Geeks. He is just one of like I think I I would take him over Judd Apatow any day. It, uh, in terms of you know current comedy kingpins who tend to champion female voices, right? So that's number ten with Spy. Number nine, we have a tie. Yes, uh, with Room and Mustang. Yes. Uh, so I put these two together uh, because they are both stories about uh, women, young women that are in captivity. Uh, in Room, we have Brie Larson playing a woman who has been kidnapped by uh, you know by a, a you know, a sex offender, sadist at some point. Right. And, uh, you know, and she's been locked in uh, a small shed for five years. And during that time, she has become pregnant from the rape of her captor and had a child who was, we're watching the movie is turning five years old. Um, I think seven years actually is how long she's been there. And Mustang is uh, a movie that we're going to be talking about at greater length in um, the December 25th episode mm-hmm. of our podcast. Because Merry that's Christmas. Because that's the day that it is released in San Francisco. Uh, but it's it's most easily described as a Turkish virgin suicides. Um, yeah. But it takes place, except for unlike the virgin suicides, this is actually told from the young women's point of view and not boys on the outside looking with their male gazes right. at the young women. Um, it's about these five very tight knit, very rebellious uh, sisters uh, in you know in 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 a, a small seaside village in Turkey. Uh, who conclude their spring semester at school and um, have some very tame rough housing with um, some boys from school um, in a lake. And then word gets back to their parents. Well, not their parents, actually. Uh, they are being raised by their grandmother and by their uncle. And these are all you know traditional uh, Muslim adherents. And they are punished um, for having been seen with boys. And then basically the house is turned into a prison to keep them locked in. And uh, and turn into what one character describes as a wife factory to start trying to force them oh, wow. to um, you know to to break their spirits and to turn them into more acceptable visions of, of women, and uh, but they will not be broken. And uh, it's a really uh, it's 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 been a surprising thing to see, uh, see championed on social media by people who don't normally talk about foreign films, like both Mindy Kaling and Reese Witherspoon. Have oh. both posted pictures of this movie on their Instagram, being like, "See this movie." Interesting. So, uh, so these are both movies that are about you know these 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 sort of overlapping narratives of young women uh, in captivity, and uh, and they're completely different films, um, but you know, but they do have some interesting kind of uh, you know similar ideas about uh, you know it, I think the the feminist subtext of Mustang is a lot stronger and clearer. 
But in Room, Brie Larson's character has a scene where she is arguing with her mother, Joan Allen, um, after she has gotten out of the room, which is not a spoiler because it's in all the trailers. And um, and she is saying, like, maybe if I didn't have your voice in my head saying, be nice, be nice mm. to men, don't don't be mean to men, then maybe I wouldn't have, have let the man talk me into going to help him with his dog. And maybe I wouldn't have lost seven years off my life. And uh, so I think that, you know, in both of these films, we have, um, you know, these stories of of young women uh, who are figuring out how to navigate the world and uh, and how what relationships with men um, are, you know, in cultures of in cultures of rape in cultures of sexual abuse in cultures of, you know, objectification. And uh, it's it's it's. Yeah, they're, they're interesting twin parallels, uh, twin narratives in, in some ways. And I, I love them both. And so they're sharing the number nine slot. And coming up at number eight is the movie that's at the current top of my two watch list, Chirac. Yes. Or Chirac. <laughs> this is a movie that I just watched recently. And it's kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> it's a Spike Lee production. It's a Spike Lee joint. And it's kind of a mess. But it has something going for it that will come up in a couple of these movies, which is that it's just alive. Like mm. there's so much life in this movie and it has so many ideas and it tries so many different ways of expressing them. And I mean, it is, it's, it's a gloriously messy movie, um, but it has a sense of urgency to it. And, um, and there's just vision. And I feel like sometimes, you know, you're willing to overlook flaws in the movie if it actually has life and vision yeah and this one definitely has those things going for it it's a great return to form for spike lee who has been fucking up for a while man let me tell you about the ball he dropped on nba 2k16 this year <laughs> oh is that right it's a fucking nightmare man well this <laughs> nice is... playing along with that one yeah i'm like yeah huh, all right what are those words i'm like yes i'm like now i feel like you listening to me talk <laughs> <laughs> the tables have turned olarte <laughs> Uh, Chirac is incredibly cast. Um, I never thought that I would be applauding Nick Cannon for like a, a, a dramatic lead performance. After Drumline. After Drumline. Um, but here we are, and he's fantastic. Tiana Paris is one of my favorite rising stars. Uh, she played Dawn Draper's secretary, Dawn, on Mad Men. Okay. And she was in Dear White People, which was one of my favorite movies last year. That was a great movie. And now in this movie, which, by the way, uh, is a, sort of a modern update of Aristophanes' um, Greek play Lysistrata, um, updated to modern-day Chicago, or as it's apparently called, Chirac. Uh, although Chance the Rapper would disagree. <laughs> He's been feuding with Spike Lee in, in, in the press. Huh? Is Spike Lee Chance the Rapper's uncle? I don't know. Is he? I have heard that somewhere. Oh, I don't know. Well, it'd be, it, 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 it's a hell of a family feud if he is. Yeah. Well, um, I think also Chance the Rapper's father is like, very involved in Chicago government. Yes. And so, so he's he very defensive of this. And, horses in the race. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the story is essentially about, um, oh, 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 an uprising of women in, in Chicago and Chicago's black neighborhoods, um, saying that to make, uh, gang warfare stop and stop claiming so many innocent bystander victims that they will, uh, just stop having sex with men mm-hmm. and that that will, uh, you know, lead to the change that they want to see. And while I do think that it's it's problematic to say that it somehow is a the responsibility of women to solve male warmongering, right? Or b that male warmongers are terribly concerned with what women consent to do, right? 
Um, I think that it's still, uh, you know, it's still provocative. It's still incendiary. It still is uh, a really wild read on kind of like sex wars. Uh, and uh, it's it's just like, it's really just interesting. It also, Jennifer Hudson is in the film as well. Oh, right. And she's from Chicago. She is. And like her whole family was killed. It, it was. And uh, and in the film, she plays the mother of a young child who is, who is a, a bystander who's shot and killed. Oh, my God. And so she plays a grieving Chicago woman. And, um, and it's really intense to see her because she's, she's in tears in a lot of her scenes. And, you know, just imagining how it probably, you know, didn't take much for her to access those, those right. feelings. Um, much and, like Julianne uh, Moore on Billy on the Street. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. They're just right there in the surface at all times. Um, and I, yeah, Jennifer Hudson is not really doing press about this movie because then like, yeah. obviously all the questions would be about what happened with her family. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so Chirac is, is just, uh, you know, and this is a, of course also a great year to have someone like Spike Lee step up and make a relevant piece of art. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's done. And the film, it feels very 2015. Uh, and uh, it's it's just really, really interesting. And, and it's an important movie. It kind of reminds me, we, the other uh, week we were talking about um, Macbeth. Yeah. And uh, sort of like, where where is the place for a Shakespearean movie now? And this is, it's Aristophanes, right? It's Aristophanes. Lysistrata. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, taking the story, but making it thoroughly modern and thoroughly uh, relatable. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's a well, it's a good move on that point. Yes. And, uh, and bits of it are done. Um, they kind of go back and forth between having the lines rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. they don't do it in a way that's like overly... Um, overly precious overly affected okay like the actors are also good they're able to do these rhyming lines these couplet dialogue uh, bits of dialogue without making you remember like oh yeah they're like they're doing verse you know mm-hmm. and also um angela bassett's in the movie as well oh well that's reason enough yes why isn't it number one and just i feel like there needs to be a gif of like there's a scene where there's like a close-up of her face and like the rallying cry of the women in this movie is no peace no pussy mm-hmm. and you will hear that 5,000 times in this movie. Did you feel special because that's what you have tattooed on I did. Your arm? I did. Well, actually, you know, I, I was going to get my arm. I am getting it just over my ass. Okay. Um, because, you know, like, that's that's where I feel like the message would have the most power. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, just a close-up of Angela Bassett's face going, no peace, no pussy, um, <laughs> is, it's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. And I believe Chirac will actually be available... I shouldn't be saying this, but on Amazon, um, um, pretty soon, um, it's currently having a limited theatrical run. And then, mm-hmm. cause I think Amazon kind of helped finance it. And so it's, oh, it, it was like one of their first steps into having original movies and mm-hmm. not just, um, original TV series. That brings us to number seven, which I think would be my number one of the year. Um, granted, I haven't thought this out. Mm-hmm. Creed. Creed. Yes. Yeah, Creed, uh, as we touched upon, this is one of the movies that we also reviewed uh, on this podcast. Uh, Creed is just a perfectly executed sports drama uh, that is written and acted with so much heart and so much soul, so much conviction, uh, that doesn't waste any characters, that gives, you mm-hmm. know, uh, characters that would normally be throwaways, like a girlfriend, right, uh, or, you know, a mom, or a trainer, or, you know, like, it just makes all of them these, like, fully dimensional, recognizable people. And, you know, it makes it a story about people, which I think all the best... Absolutely. All, when sports movies work, they work because they are about people, and they are... And they succeed in being about people. And I think that, that that's that is why Creed works so well. It's because Ryan Coogler 
um, ha- is, is a humanist, and mm-hmm. that comes through in his work. The movie is neat. Everything makes sense. Nothing seems like it's there for no reason. Um, the relationship aspect, which I know you often think that if there isn't a room for mm-hmm. a, a romance and there shouldn't be, right. w- works perfectly. Um, it makes Philadelphia look good, sort of, <laughs> which is not easy. I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I just was yeah ranting in a in a separate episode of the show about never being in favor of romances in movies ever. But yeah, in this one, I was I I, I was all about uh, Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson's characters. Uh, you know, I think when you can see people having real. When it doesn't feel forced, that's all I want. Right. You know, I want it to feel like a natural. I don't want it to be like overly meet cutie. I don't want it to be like mm-hmm. two actors just like beaming at each other stupidly. You know, it should feel like an authentic connection building between people the way it does in real life. Right. And the chemistry and between these two is just. It's off the charts. Electric. Yeah. Electric. It also brought uh, one of my favorite uh, analogies of yours. Um, it looks like. Michael B. Jordan is smuggling cantaloupes. He does. For mussels. Right? I've been using it ever since. I mean, I wasn't making that up. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, shoulder, bicep, like each one, its own cantaloupe. Man full of cantaloupes. It's crazy. Um, also, uh, worth pointing out, Tessa Thompson um, last year was also in Dear White People. She was. With Tiana Paris. And that was when I first really fell in love with Tessa Thompson. I, she had been mm-hmm. on Friday Night Lights. I had seen her, I think, or she had been on... Um, no, she was on Veronica Mars, actually. Okay. Um, and uh, but she is so just fiery in Dear White People, and yeah. uh, and and also in Creed, and she's also and she's a stunner. I mean, she looks like she kind of has like mild Rihanna face, and and she's just an amazing. And she, as yeah. you investigate, if you want to talk about the music, she uh, plays a musician in the movie, and though the tracks aren't written by her, she sings on all of them. So maybe there's something coming out uh, yeah. our way with that. And uh, and you say that you were reading that she and she helped develop the music. You right. Know, she was working with people who were doing the writing of the tracks and mm-hmm. figuring out who you know this woman would be musically and and which turns out the answer is FKA Twigs. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. You know there can be two. So moving on to number six, another movie with a bunch of hard bodies. Spotlight. <laughs> yes, yes, hard, hard, hard body journalists. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so if there's any line of work that that really is is you know leans you out, <laughs> it's sitting in a chair for 24 hours a day. Mark Ruffalo smuggling cantaloupes. Yeah, yes, in his ass, <laughs> and I'm not mad at that. Uh, yeah, Spotlight is another film that we touched upon on the podcast in a previous episode. Uh, it is uh, a f- just an excellent, excellent, excellent example of taking a procedural t- uh, and doing it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Just not botching any of it. Um, you know, it's been praised endlessly for actually getting journalism right, which is hard to do because, you know, journalism is cinematic, but real journalism isn't necessarily cinematic. Right. Um, you know, to actually just see people just like sitting in a newsroom all day and then occasionally like going out and meeting a source at a coffee shop and, you know, or like pouring over an Excel file. And, you know, these are all <laughs> things you see people do in this movie. And it seems to capture the spirit of it right. And it's also, it's just very compelling. And it makes a great case for what journalism looks like when it's done right. Mm-hmm. And it's another case where, uh, like, a lot of the um, non-main actors, the whole cast is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, like, a, you know, someone who comes in for a moment, excellent. The delivery is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and how does this movie make Boston look? <laughs> like a lawless nightmare factory. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the movie is, uh, it's very good at, you know, like... Um, I'm thinking of The Wire just because I was just reading an interview today with um, 
uh, David Simon, the creator of The Wire, uh, where he was, you know, praising Spotlight and, and Tom McCarthy, its writer-director, because Tom McCarthy, as we talked about on the show, played um, a bad journalist mm-hmm. in the final season of The Wire. And, um, and, uh, and you know, The Wire, like Spotlight, was very good at um, depicting the sort of the institutional ways that this kind of injustice gets carried out. Right. The ways that law enforcement and journalism and religion all can sort of partner queasily together Mm -hmm. the way that they do in Boston um, to cover something like this up for so long. Right. Uh, Because, you know, it all just kind of ends up working out best for everyone if it just is looked away from and swept under the rug. And that's something that Spotlight um, depicts in a way that I think anyone can watch and understand. Number five, we have Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yes. Uh, so Brooklyn um, crept up on me. I, I, I did not. This there's another romance. I have these. I mean, You're getting so soft in your I old am. age. God damn. Um, Brooklyn really crept up on me. I, I, you know, I thought that it was going to be, you know, just like this kind of musty old romantic drama. <laughs> um, and what I got was probably the most the most purely emotional uh, movie experience I had all year. Um, And it's, you know, it could be, it could have very easily been a very maudlin, very treacly story. You know, Irish immigrant girl crosses the ocean, meets boy, you know, goes back to Ireland, meets another boy. What's she going to do? But it's, it's so, um, it's so poised. It's so sophisticated in its storytelling and Saoirse Ronan um, gives her best performance yet out of many great performances uh, in the title role, in the title role <laughs> as young Brooklyn. as young Brooklyn, <laughs> as as like as young young Brooklyn O'Laughlin. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, as as the protagonist, uh, she's yeah she's the best she's ever been. Um, we did award her with best actress from the San Francisco Film Critics Circle. Oh, good. it came down to her and Charlotte Rampling for forty five years, and uh, Saoirse got it. And I, I I did vote for for Saoirse, so you're welcome, Ms. Ronan. <laughs> um, she's fantastic in the film. She is the reason the film works so well. She is just so controlled, but still, like, you just, you know, you read it all. You read it all in her face. Um, it's fantastic. She's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I was surprised myself that I put it above Spotlight because, you know, I feel like, you know, Spotlight is, is so much more significant. Um, but Brooklyn, it just got me in the feels, and those are hard to reach. Uh, so I, I keep I, them so locked up. I do. I do. Yeah, I keep them in Iron Maiden. Uh, which uh, which I lost the key two years ago, but um, but yeah, that is why I love Brooklyn, and that's why it's in my top five. Number four is Dope. This was surprising to me. Yeah, was it? Yeah, uh, I saw Dope. Uh, I thought it was good. I was really excited to see it, mm-hmm. uh, but then I felt like it lost me halfway through. Really? Yeah. Was there a certain plot twist that made you lose interest, or you just felt it like a lot random momentum, or? Um, it was like that whole sort of like drug chase scene uh-huh. when they like go to that house and then things get out of control. I right. felt like it kind of got off the, the rails there. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah, I guess I didn't see it taking the turns that it did. And mm-hmm. um, overall, I, I think there's a theme in a lot of these movies and you'll especially see it in the next one um, of, of an energy. 
mm-hmm. um, and a wild ride. Um, and, and just there's a life, you know. There's, yeah. There's a life to it. Dope is one of those movies that I was talking about earlier when I said movies that just have life in them. Yeah, this is and, definitely uh, one of those. And I don't, you know, and I, I, I did not have any issue with the, the you know, the, the directions that it took because I, you know, it is a very kind of rollicking adventure mm-hmm. of a movie. And I think that all of those plot twists are in the service of the movie's bigger messages, its commentary on race and opportunity, mm-hmm. and oh, sure. sort of, and sure. the irony that this young man in Inglewood, um, you know, that he, you know, holds himself so much apart from those kinds of trappings of the local culture, and is like, I'm a nerd, I, you know, like punk rock mm-hmm. and, and 80s hip hop. And, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't fuck with any of this stuff around me. I'm on my track to go to college. And then it's sort of like the last hurdle he has to clear is that he does get dragged into the kind of thing that he's held himself apart from. Right. Um, And uh, so I think that that is really powerful. And uh, and I think that the kid is so fucking good. He's so charming. He's so cool. This main actor, Shamik Moore, who plays the protagonist Mm -hmm. of this film. Um. You had to love the lesbian. I think that, yes, I did. I think that I was thinking about this one and the next movie both have a very, um, what's the right word, exaggerated or um, unflinching scene of people getting sick. Oh. And I have like a, just that's like the worst thing to me. And I think that as soon as someone gets like what I call not well, throws up on screen, I'm like, shut it off, that's it, <laughs> movie's over, not watching this anymore, and that happens, you, like, so, oh, it's yeah. so visual. Even though, well, Rooney Mara does it in Carol. Does she? Yeah, they pull it on the side of the road, and she runs out of the oh, car. Oh, yeah, and I don't know, you probably didn't look over, but I was, like, oh. rocking like a baby with my ears closed. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice I also that. wasn't that big of a fan of Carol, so. <laughs> right, it's not my top Movies 10. just need to be, <laughs> avoid that, and I'll be fine. But, uh, it, it Trigger does warning. change <laughs> It's <laughs> my trigger warning. I need um, maybe that because that's right around the moment where I started to like disconnect from the movie when she he like goes to that house and, and they have that whole yeah scene and that is a very pukey scene. It is and from one a, and of the from, worst and, I've ever seen and from a beautiful lady. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, tricked, baited, yes. switched. Yes, exactly. You felt you felt misled because you were like titties and then there was, <laughs> and then there was just puke everywhere. I have heard how your thoughts work, right? You're like titties, puke. <laughs> That's, it was a one-two punch. Somewhere in the back of my head, I'm sure that's how it works. But then it goes through some filters that's like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, my right, God, exactly. this is disgusting. All right, well, we're not talking about inside out, so <laughs> you know how it goes from the joy to the disgust, how it goes from polar to kaling. So anyway, yes. dope. Dope. Yeah, no, I, I just, I fucking love this movie. I thought it was just a huge breath of fresh air, um, and uh, it just it just wakes me up when I watch it. Speaking of a movie that will wake you the fuck up when you watch it, number three is Tangerine. Tangerine, motherfuckers. So good. So good, yeah. So so as as you're listening to this, this is the first time that Rebecca and I are seeing each other since she watched the movie, so I'm eager to hear her talk about it. I love that you described it as the perfect L.A. Christmas movie. Yeah. Because it was. It really is. It made me feel, feel feelings about L.A. Mm. Um, in a way that it wasn't romanticized. Uh, it just felt like legitimately interesting and, and weird like LA is. Yes. Um it's I read I read somewhere that it's like a, a tribute to its transit system because you never see that ever in any movies or right. when you go to LA you never use transit. And you see it in dope too. Yeah, you do. Oh yeah, you do see it in dope as well. Mm-hmm. Um Tangerine was fantastic. The the acting was again 
electric. I felt energized. Mm-hmm. I felt so excited to see what's going to happen. Um, there, the chemistry between the the main characters is fan- is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Another acting honor from the film critics circle. Uh, we gave a oh, supporting right. actress to Maya Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, our first ever trans acting winner and uh, I definitely helped lead the charge in that one I've been like firing shots for her over email to all the members in the circle for like months and uh, and she and she had she had some challengers um, she really? had some people in the room oh, that were right. advocating for um, Elizabeth Banks for Love and Mercy who was the runner up huh. which I, I don't even I, I don't I, I don't know I have no idea why our, our membership are so in love with that movie but um but no i think with maya taylor this is such like this is that kind of star is born moment yeah. that is always so magical when it happens that you know like neither she nor kiki rodriguez her co-star had acted before professionally and um and and they both have so much presence so much mm-hmm. energy like they're both so watchable in such completely different ways in such complementary ways uh they were friends in real life and um and uh when i interviewed sean baker for about this movie the writer director and uh, when he set off to make it, he didn't know what it was going to be, genre-wise. He didn't know what the story was going to be. He just knew he wanted to make a story about the sex workers around that area of Los Angeles. And uh, and then he met uh, these two at a, a, an LGBT center in L.A. And uh, and then just listening to them talk and tell stories and crack each other up, that's how he got the idea to make it sort of like a comedy duo. Mm-hmm. And, Interesting. Uh, and uh, he let them, he really you know invited them to shape the screenplay in like major ways. And, you know, they had a lot of ideas and input on, like, you know, they're like, if we're going to do this, we want to do it right. We want to do something that is accurate about life in the streets. If, if, it's, if it's offensive, if it's, like, people don't want to hear it, how it really is, we don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. We want it to be real. And uh, But we also want it to be something that, like, these girls can watch and enjoy and be entertained by. We don't want it to be, like, a polite movie. We want right. it to be something that they can right. watch and enjoy. And what you have as a result is this just kind of, like, hysterical farce. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of just like it's a throwback screwball farce, um, which you get from musical cues too. There's like old timey, old Hollywood musical cues. Mm-hmm. There's um, just a heart stoppingly haunting, beautiful scene where Maya Taylor's character sings Toyland from Babes in Toyland um, in a in like an abandoned gay bar on Christmas Eve. And uh, there's there's just so many just transcendently beautiful moments, even though which it was shot with an iPhone. Yeah, the whole I feel movie like is shot with an iPhone, and it looks so gorgeous. It was like financed by the Duplass brothers. It was shot on an iPhone. I feel like there were a lot of things to make this sound really gimmicky. Yeah, there was also a lot of criticism about, oh, it's about trans sex workers. Why can't it be about trans, mm-hmm. you know, doing something else? Um, right. But yeah, what your story of, of how the story came to be really provides a lot of insight on that, and how yeah. it's not, it's not like that. It's not uh, something that feels like it, it marginalizes people right right well you know i think that you know there's there's a certain it takes what really were the only trans um archetypes that we had culturally forever which mm-hmm. was like you know it was like the cheapest gag you could have was like oh here's a movie about la oh here's a scene where you know like a black trans sex worker walks up to someone's limo like hey baby want a date right. you know that's like the only representation we had for trans people in culture for so long was you know like the now very like offensive retired term tranny hookers right so that was all we ever had and um, and now what sean baker and these two amazing women have done is taken those women and given them their story mm-hmm. given them yeah. their voice and uh and, and it was, it's good just in terms of a broad representation because you know like obviously this past year has been you know the, the trans women who have been front and center have been very polished very well to do caitlin so jenner in, in some, they are not yes exactly and, you know in some cases extremely wealthy like caitlin jenner you have you know like liver and cox you have janet mock 
all incredible women who are doing incredible things. But you know, there's a much broader socioeconomic spectrum of of you know of trans women, and you know the vast majority are, are well under the poverty line mm-hmm. and can't access you know the, you know surgeries and and good makeup and makeup artists and glam squads. Right. And so you know the, and you see that like you get a face full of that when you watch this movie. And, um, you know, and it's in it, it balances very poignant scenes of heartache with just like over the top humor and camp. Mm-hmm. And it feels like an original you're watching. It, you're like, I have not seen this before. Thank you, movie. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's alive. It's full of life. It feels like a new, you know, a new queer cinema kind of movie from like 1990 that somehow is just getting released now. Yeah, it does. It has that kind of energy yeah. to it, where you're like something new is happening in this movie. I love that whole like day, like when something takes place, when a movie takes place in a day. Yeah, that whole feel to it. Um, right. Like what's going to happen Eve. next, Caper thing. Mm-hmm. Um, tangerine. I wish tangerine. I, I wish we used um, sound effects. I would give you an applause for your <laughs> description of Tangerine. <laughs> But we don't, so you don't get one. Number two, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. Yes. Uh, this is a film that um, that I hoped would be good, if only because it was filmed entirely in San Francisco. It takes place here. It was produced by an acquaintance. Uh, Peaches Christ has a cameo in it. Uh, but all those things aside, this is just such a fucking amazing movie. Uh, just one of the most emotionally honest sort of coming of age sexual stories I've ever seen um, if only because it John Waters described it thusly whenever he included this in his top 10 movies of the year list this year um, he was like this movie offers a non-judgmental portrait of sex between adults and children uh, wow. which is you know which you know the word children makes you think really young spotlight uh, right but in this case it's a story of the you know a 16 year old girl who has an affair with her mother's 35-year-old boyfriend. And uh, and the sense of place is so strong in the movie. The point of view is so strong. Um, and it's so, uh, it's so kind of revolutionary in depicting a young woman's sexual awakening in a way that's entirely non-cliche, entirely fresh, um, showing, you know, she is, you know, she's very much the aggressor, very much the initiator in this um, thing with her mother's boyfriend, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård. Um, but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't let him off the hook in mm-hmm. any way, mm-hmm. but it sort of it lets you draw your own conclusions as you're watching it. Like, OK, like, yes, he's a broken man. Like the movie doesn't need to, like, overstate that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have he need, he would have realized he's the adult and he's the one who should be saying no to this kind of thing. Right. But then showing her, you know, when as she discovers that she enjoys sex and is a sexual person, you know, kind of working her way through other boys and other girls. And then, you know, and just coming to a point in the end where she's like, I don't need any of this shit. Um, which I think is always, you know, the best end of any kind of, you know, romantic story is the person <laughs> realizing that, you know, like, I just, I, I don't need to settle down with a dude at the end of the day um, to be happy and whole and complete. Um, but it's just, it feel it's, it's frank. It's very frank. It's very raw. Uh, it's very amazingly acted. Belle Powley is the only woman who plays the lead character, and she is unbelievable. Kristen Wiig plays her mother. She's, you know, it's a great dramatic performance from her. Alexander Skarsgård is better than I ever knew he could be. Um, it's it's uh, written and directed by Marielle Heller, uh, who is a filmmaker to watch. She also is, she's now directing on Transparent. Oh, really? Yes. And uh, and this is just uh, I, I watched it a second time recently, and I loved it even more than I did the first time. Uh, 
I, I think that this is, it's bold, it's courageous, uh, and it's beautiful, and I, I just fucking love it. Bringing us to bold, courageous number one, can you guess what it's going to be? I don't know, can you? Mad Max Fury Road. Who knew, right? No idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you had told me going into this year that my number one would be the sequel to a franchise from the 80s that I never even fucking saw. <laughs> like, obviously, that would sound crazy to me. Um, but here we are. Um, I remember, I actually, the first screening I, I went to of Mad Max Fury Road, it was, a, you know, it was a promo screening. And I think I actually managed to, like, get in, even though I wasn't on the list. Like, I showed up, and they were, like, cracking down, and, and you know, they weren't going to let me in, but, like, I found some guy to let me in. And mm-hmm. they had, like, a whole... Story for a different time. Yes. And um, and they had like a whole Burning Man camp there. They invited to like because oh, they right. want to try to you know ca- you know capitalize on that local angle, and uh, and I was just like okay let's like you know, let's see I'm sure this movie's gonna be like cool to look at and you know has cool people in it so you know maybe it won't be totally awful. And I just was like <laughs> I don't know words fail words fail like at how just captivated and mesmerized and energized I was watching this amazing movie and just being like oh my god. This is the real fucking deal. This is like a, a, a vivacious, intense, like eye-popping blockbuster mm-hmm. with visuals that I have never seen before that I will never forget that also packs this unbelievable political feminist punch. And I just wanted to start again as soon as it ended. I saw it, I think, two more times in theaters. Oh, wow. Um, and because I just want to keep taking people to go see it. It's one of those things where you're like, come see this movie with me. Yeah. Like, I want to see you see this movie. I want to see what you think about it. I want to see you experience it. Because it's a movie you experience. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, it does something that, you know, that cinema as an art form is uniquely qualified to do, to be like an experience, um, you know, for all the senses. And that is what Fury Road does. Uh, it is... Um, I just couldn't believe it. And then, uh, you know, as I'm sitting there watching this movie, I had no idea it was going to be my best of the year. Um, I kept waiting for something else to come along and be better, but it just never happened. Nope. Like, I never saw anything else this year where I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, obviously that's better than Mad Max Fury Road. Like, I felt like such a jackass repeatedly campaigning for it in our film critic circle voting meeting because, you know, I felt like, you know, people were trying to campaign for somewhat smaller films like, well, let's go for Brooklyn, let's go for Carol. And I'm like, listen, like, no diss to those movies, but Fury Road's fucking better. Right. Like, I don't want to be, like, the white dude being like, Mad Max Fury Road is the best! (laughs) You know? But, like, it fucking is. It fucking is the best. Like, it just, like, ugh. Like, it gives me the chills when I watch that movie. Like, just everything about it is so amazing. George Miller, you know, who came back to direct it after creating um, the series, is, I believe, 70. And this movie courses with more, like, palpating action and nerve than anything that I can ever remember seeing. Um, And just, you know, the the editing, the photography, the, I don't want to say the music, music's kind of cheesy. That guy, guy, the the, the, the steampunk guitar guitar flaming guy, I mean, that's a little ridiculous. Um, But, you know, but it had, like, but it made that happen. Like, someone had that idea, and then they just made that happen. Yeah, like you're saying, unique to film, it created a world that doesn't exist, that you didn't know could exist, Mm -hmm. and you you sit there, and you forget about the world you're in for two hours. And that's that thing that movies can do, and when they do it well, it's magical absolutely transcend where you are well said well said and that's and that's why and that's exactly why it's my number one because it does that it does the full movie effect it's not small it's not understated 
it is a big fucking movie and it works perfectly and we need more of them that was a challenge i received from a very prominent member of the film critic circle on sunday was um it's like well shouldn't we be trying to encourage something we want to see more of it's like well yeah yes, this is exactly. i would like to see more like subversive blockbusters with amazing female stars that are about dismantling the patriarchy yes please like <laughs> i would love to see more of that yeah can exactly I, can i have that yeah, so yeah definitely mad max fury road number, number one, one film of 2015 with a bullet and that wraps up the 10 best movies of 2015 and which brings us to the five worst of 2015 yes if you are sick and tired of hearing me say nice things about movies you've reached the part of the show where i say not nice things about movies so you've made it starting with (laughs) it's funny to even say chappy <laughs> who would have known the d'antwood film juggernaut did not take off as expected what a shit show yeah who knew that those two photogenic kids <laughs> wouldn't make great With, movie stars yeah they don't yeah there's nothing they can't understand when they speak you yeah. don't understand what they look like i mean obviously there are things about them that i'm just not going to get culturally because i'm just not plugged into like what's happening in south africa today right um i'm sure that they are relevant for some reason i'm I sure guess. the rest of south africa is like that's not us <laughs> somewhere Charlize there and it's like yeah, nope she's like, not my south africa <laughs> i mean i feel like they are like a harmony corin wet dream hybrid <laughs> of manifestation like, of, of, a- of gummo's jarring ugliness <laughs> And Spring Breakers thug white posturing. <laughs> yes. Like, they are that. Yes. That is what they are. And they are fucking nightmares to watch in a movie. They are such goddamn goons. Yeah. Um, like, you just, like, and they are, they get away with so much in this movie. And you're like, how? In what world are these two, like, criminal masterminds who <laughs> are, you know, like, able to abscond with this, like, police robot droid thing? With a heart of gold. With a heart of gold. Um. And the weirdest thing, and then, you know, and Dev Patel playing the inventor who is, like, basically, like, the pushy surrogate parent who keeps trying to, like, angle in and, and, and you know, give Chappie pep talks. Like, he actually says, <laughs> nurture your creativity, Chappie. That's a thing that Dev Patel has to say in this movie. What's funny? That's what you said to me when we started this podcast. I thought you made it up, but I guess not. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was, I was, I was zinging you. Um, <laughs> It is, and the weirdest thing about it is, you know, so we have this movie, it's from Neil Blomkamp, who made District 9, which was, we all, you know, everyone agrees that that's a great fucking movie, followed up with Elysium with Matt Damon, which was kind of like a movie that was mostly notable for having Jodie Foster basically play Tabitha Coffee from Tabitha Takes On, Takes Over Salon Shows on Bravo. Mm -hmm. And now we have Chappie. Which, you know, you read the the log line, you're like, okay, it's about like a, it takes place in a dystopian South Africa where we have like a police robot. And automatically you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be about like totalitarianism and it's oppression. District 10. Yeah, exactly. But then when you watch it, it's actually just about like parenting. It's like <laughs> nature versus nurture. It's basically like trying to help you understand like, you know, like Chappie as impressionable blank slate child uh, you know, who picks up different habits from his different parents. And goddamn, it's just terrible. Like, it's such a misfire. Um, it is interesting, at least. I mean, it's definitely not the kind of bad movie where you're, like, bored. Right. Um, it's sort of like Showgirls in the sense that <laughs> it finds, like, new ways to be bad. Um, <laughs> like, constantly throughout its running time, you're like, oh, this is bad in a way I haven't seen before. <laughs> 
Like, I spent, like, entire scenes of the movie sort of, like, robotically shaking my head side to side, like the drummer in a Chuck E. Cheese robot band. (laughs) Just kind of going, like, I can't believe what I'm looking at. Um, You know, like, showing... I don't even want to say Deant words, like, stupid individual names, so I won't. Don't. But the dude teaching the robot to pimp walk is a thing that happened on all of our watches. <laughs> we let it happen, and it's up to us to make sure it doesn't happen again. Oh, my God. Yeah. I haven't. Here's the thing. I haven't seen Chappie. Well, good for you. And I don't know that if this podcast is working as intended, because now I want to see Chappie. <laughs> Should we do, like, a, the binge binges uh, on the worst movies uh, night. Yeah. Is this I, the kind of movie that you can get together with your friends and be like, let's get high <laughs> and laugh until that, we can't breathe? Not that any of us or our friends would 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 get high. No, I know we don't actually get high, but no. you know other people. We would do. drink though. Yeah, we, we would. We drink. would drink. Uh, well, I, I think the drugs went into the production of Chappie. It definitely feels <laughs> like it was substance like substance contributed to. Um, and I don't know. I think it would be the kind of movie that watch with your friends and just be like, what the fuck is this? Like, you would just, like, just say that to each other over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah, I think it has potential for, like, a bad movie night. It does. It does. Uh, so, unlike some movies on this on this list. Bringing uh, us to the next yes. set. It's a tie that you would not have a, a fun movie night with at no. all. The Danish Girl and Freeheld. Yes. So now these are two movies that are definitely on here as disappointments rather than bad movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Freeheld is also kind of a bad movie. Uh, the Danish Girl is just too goddamn well-mannered for its own good. Uh, so uh, we, we unpacked Danish Girl at length in a very mm-hmm. recent episode. And so you guys can go back and listen to that if you want to hear us really go in on it. Uh, but you know, these are both, you know, these are both supposed to be really big, significant, great films about LGBT issues, uh, with huge casts and tons of visibility. And they're supposed to, it's just like, we were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. We wanted these films to be great and to be worthwhile, but instead they're both just so kind of disingenuous and so, uh, just bland and shitty. And... (laughs) (sighs) Uh, you know, uh, I just, I'm picturing like when you see a movie trailer and you see like the quotes at the bottom and it's like, you know, the yeah, New bland and shitty <laughs> <laughs> with like, like, with, like uh, the yeah. music playing like <laughs> Julianne like, Moore's smiling yes, face, bland and shitty Jason Leroy, the binge. <laughs> um, I give it five bland and shitties. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like these were just huge letdowns. Um, you know, they each have some some saving graces in their in their casts, uh, namely Michael Shannon and Freeheld and Alicia Vikander in uh, Danish Girl. But so the standout performances are n- are none of the gay or transgender characters, right? Okay, precisely, just precisely, and that you know ties into what we talked about with Danish Girl too, which is that you know these movies are more interested in giving you uh, sort of like a compelling. Um, entry point character, a straight character, you know, through mm-hmm. which to engage with the with the queer characters, and uh, and that is not great, uh, right. and that's another reason why I just fucking love Tangerine so much is yep. because there is no character like that in this movie. There's no like safe character. It just like says like here are these women, get to know them. Yeah, you know, and yeah. then you know, you think oh maybe this could be the cab driver, and then nope, nope, nope. <laughs> that might be even harder to relate to. Yeah, uh, there's no hand-holding in Tangerine. Yeah, none at all, none at it's all. Like it's like you're not, a fucking adult, this is the world. It could not be more the opposite 
it could not be more the antidote to bland, shitty movies like Free Held and The Danish Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it's it just it's not interested in respectability politics. Absolutely. It doesn't give a fuck about that. No. Uh, it is unapologetically itself, and it just expects you to just deal with it. Uh, and uh, and yeah, these movies just go way too far. They bend over backwards to make the audience comfortable and make sure yeah. there's you know, nothing, nothing, nothing untoward happening and are just toothless and unnecessary and a waste of everyone's fucking time. That was The Danish Girl and Freeheld. <laughs> uh, let's see what we have next. Jupiter Ascending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, could, I was trying to decide Ooh. whether or not I, I thought of this as like a movie that had potential yeah. um, enough to be on this list. Um, but I figure because the Wachowskis, like, exactly. you know, like they, you know, they, they, by some accounts might still be in a free fall, but I mean, I people, I but like people were like, exactly. Sensei, I think put them back on the map as like, oh, they still have something in them that could be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And Cloud Atlas has its defenders. Yeah. Um, Tawny is not one of them, <laughs> nor am I. We saw that film together and it, it wrecked both of our lives. Um, but Jupiter Ascending, it was kind of like, okay, well, now they're working with, like, okay, Chain Tatum and Mila Kunis and Eddie Redmayne, and, you know, so kind of an interesting young cast, and maybe it'll work, and goddamn, I mean, it's, what are they thinking with this <laughs> shit? What were they like, why, how could this many people come together, this many grown-ups come together and, like, make this happen? And be like, yes, this is the right thing to do. This 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 is the perfect movie to make. This is a good way to spend like a hundred million dollars. This is a good way to, you know, like make every detail of this world that we're gonna have to build for this like fictional realm. Like, yes, this all looks fantastic. We are making good use of our time and money with this. <laughs> like it's such a fucking joke. So it's and, like Gods of Egypt one? <laughs> yeah, it's like Gods of Egypt one. Um, like in Mila Kunis's character, um, whose name is Jupiter Jones, <laughs> which means that the title itself is a little pun, right? <laughs> like poetic justice, huh? And uh, and she, for the entire first hour of the movie, calls herself Jupiter to everybody, and then an hour in, um, someone greets her as Jupiter, and she's like, "Please call me Jupe." <laughs> Which, I mean, like, I want to think Mila Kunis may have actually just decided to, like, improvise. And they were like, oh, let's go with that. Because she would, I, I'd like to think that she's smart enough to be like, this is a fucking shit show. Right. Um, like David Cross and the Elvis and the Chipmunk movies. Yes, right. Or like Gina Gershon and Showgirls. Right. Um, it, it's just so inept. And, oh, it's actually, Eddie Redmayne is on this bottom five list twice. He is. And he is so embarrassing in Jupiter Ascending. Um, that I remember I wrote at the time that I thought it might put his Oscar in danger because this came out kind of retroactively removed. Oh, well, no, I remember that. Yeah. Leading up to the Oscars and, you know, and there's this, you know, ever since Eddie Murphy lost the Oscar for Dreamgirls because Norbit came out, <laughs> um, there's been this kind of fear that like, you know, if someone has a terrible movie that gets, they'll be Norbited. Know, they'll be Norbited. You know, so that's like the when, opposite of chastaining, right? It is the opposite. It's norbiting is the opposite of chastaining. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it happened like with, you know, Natalie Portman when she had no strings attached come out, mm-hmm. um, when she was getting ready for Black Swan victory. And uh, Eddie Redmayne, and unlike Natalie Portman in that film, 
Eddie Redmayne in this movie is so fucking bad. He's really embarrassing. He basically plays Tilda Swinton like if she were struck by lightning and died legally for five minutes <laughs> and then came back to life. That, it, that, that sounds actually like a pretty awesome person, though. I it feel does. Like it does. It would be like Super Tilda and it would be amazing. <laughs> anyway, what would Super Tilda's strengths be? She could teach Chappie how to pimp walk and it would be she, cool. That's true. That would be the ultimate strength. Uh, no, he does this thing where he like speaks in like this like hush theatrical whisper and then he'll just turn it into a scream and it's so queenie and theatrical and Uh, it's and like god damn it eddie redmayne what the fuck are you doing so does he seem more crazy like a crazy person there or in the danish i know it's a very good question um because he's kind of crazy in both of them which you know as we talked about in our danish girl review you know is like we're not this is not us saying, like, oh, he's crazy because he's trans. No. It's a crazy quality that he brings to it that you're like, why are you bringing a crazy quality to this trans character? Why are you making it seem like this woman is, like, losing her mind and smiling like a crazy person the whole time? So I think Eddie Redmayne's acting instincts are not always on point. I, mm-hmm. think, he needs, I think he needs a director to guide him in the right direction. I, I, I get that. I, I'm starting to get that impression. Because, like, when he's on point... He is just, like, one of the best of the generation, like, in The Theory of Everything and in Les Mis, mm-hmm. um, but in uh, in Danish Girl and in Jupiter Ascending, he is not good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Jupiter Ascending is just, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to, like, just pile on it because, like, everyone knew it was a joke, like Chappie. Right. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that these are, like, good, talented people came together and made this terrible shit show movie. And we should call that out. <laughs> so the next one isn't isn't quite that case. Uh, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Yes. Uh, so this is like the anti-dope to me. Okay. Um, a lot of people, you know, equate these two movies at Sundance this year because they were both, you know, sort of like young teenage coming-of-age movies. And Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, for some reason, got a hugely warm, uh, rapturous response at Sundance. And I think it won the Grand Jury Prize. And then I saw it, and I was like, huh, I, I don't I don't know if I, huh, I don't know. Like, at first I was like, yeah, I guess I like this movie. And then I saw it again, and I think I saw it a third time. And by that point, I just hated it. <laughs> and uh, And not just because I had had to watch it three times. Um, what we have here is what I hope will be remembered as the most textbook case of why you don't just give yourself a white protagonist and then make everyone else secondary to them and in service of their self-discovery. Because uh. in me and Earl and Dying Girl, we have the main character who is this white teenage boy. He has a black sidekick uh, who is very much a sidekick. Uh, who's there to, um, you know, say funny things about titties, mm. um, which he it's literally like half his dialogue is saying like titties and uh, and then to eventually help our young white man have a profound realization about what he's been doing wrong in life. So it's like a young Morgan Freeman. Yeah. So you have like, yeah, it's like a version. It's like a variation on like the, the infamous magical Negro archetype. Right. Um, except for, you know, a sort of more tough talking version of that, but still very much only exists to help our young white male figure out life. And then even more heinous than that, the movie slowly kills off a young girl 
also in the service of just making this young white person appreciate life more. Oof. I like that all these uh, in the bottom five are gross for different way, for different, different yeah, reasons. Yeah, they're all gross for different reasons. Um, and it's just so, it's so heinous that, you know, in this trio of the main characters in this film, um, you know, we have our white male protagonist, and then we have a black guy and a girl. And the black guy and the girl are there just to help the white guy appreciate his life more. It's even set up that way in the title, like yeah, me, me and Earl, Earl and, and the, the dying, dying girl. girl. Like yeah, there's like the she doesn't have a girl. name exactly, exactly. Like well, it's funnier if it rhymes, like internal rhyme in the title. That's clever. We're white. Yeah. <laughs> like it's yeah. So you know, and the movie is not badly done at all. I mean, and these these kids playing these these you know this playing out this bullshit storyline are are fantastic actors. Um, the movie has great actors playing parents: Molly Shannon, Nick Offerman, Connie Britton. Uh, so there are great people in this movie. And uh, and the the thing that got the most play when it came out was that it has all these mo- mini movies. The thing that um, the main character and Earl do is they make these kind of low budget homages to famous movies. Which is just which is just peak white nerd, really. Right, right. Um, it's very like Wes Andersony kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there there are things about the movie to be enjoyed, and it also is it is filmed in Pittsburgh. Uh, so I enjoyed seeing my hometown, um, you know, stinking away in the background. <laughs> but it's just heinous. Like, no, stop doing this. Stop right. giving us what you know, white male protagonists, and then having women and people of color be there to support them. Right. And to help them figure out how to be better white people. Like, it's it's not okay. It's not cool. We need to fucking stop. We don't need more stories like this. We don't. And that was me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. <laughs> A review by Jason. <laughs> it's time for the last one. Yes. Are you ready? Let's do it. Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. That movie. I'm like, what else did I put on this list? Yeah. Tomorrowland uh, by Brad Bird. Pixar Brad Bird, mm-hmm. um, who did The Incredibles. And uh, and this has a lot kind of in common with The Incredibles uh, messaging-wise. And things about The Incredibles that I did not like about that movie whenever I whenever I first saw it. Like, it's not one of my favorite Pixar movies, because I feel like it, it has a lot of contempt in it. Mm, it's very mm-hmm. contemptuous for anyone who would get in the way of greatness. Right. It's very much about a greatness and exceptionalism and how those need to be valued above all things. And that like, oh, the mediocre out there want to reward mediocrity and they want to put, you know, chains on greatness and they won't they won't just let greatness be great. Mm-hmm. And like I it all just feels very like thump a thump a red state to me. Yeah. Um, but also, um what really struck me while watching Tomorrowland is that it's it's sort of um it's like a, a salvo for the dreamer class of the Bay Area, um, where it's like, you know, we don't, we want to create a world where it's all just inventors, just dreaming dreams mm. and creating new things. And there goes, there's, there's what's going to save the world. And it's kind of like, it's really hard to, you know, when you live in the Bay Area, to be in any way sympathetic to the dreamer class, because right. the dreamer class have one, have, have one. And have everything, and uh, so it's they're not underdogs right. um, when you're watching this movie, and uh, it's the kind of thing where um, you know there's a scene where the main this this main female protagonist who's like a, a teenager is in uh, school, and the teacher is talking about global warming, and you know you're meant to like think the teacher is like droning on and being such a downer about it, and then our our protagonist raised her hand and she's like 
well, can we fix it? And the teacher's like, well, you, you can't just fix global warming. And she's like, sure you can. Let's talk about it. How can we? And I'm like, okay, this movie is like, this movie is like a fucking TED talk um, masquerading as a movie. It's like, here's how positive thinking can change the world. And here's how we've succumbed to fatalistic thinking. Dialogue is clickbait. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like, I think we can take here, click here, find out how we can save the world from global warming. Like, it's um, it's like, you won't believe what this girl this said girl in class. Hand, this right. girl raised her head in class. What she said next. It'll blow your mind. Yeah, exactly. Which, like, makes me want to just cut my wrist even thinking about those kinds of headlines. Um, but, like, this movie is, is almost, like, some reviews were like, this movie is, like, fascist level in its positivity. Mm. It, like, it plays, like, propaganda. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it's just shitty. Uh, again, this is a movie that has like great, you know, has good people involved in George it. George Clooney? George Clooney is in it. Britt Robertson plays the young girl. Um, Catherine Hahn and Keegan-Michael Key have, uh, very funny cameos in it. Um, and you know, the effects are good and it looks nice and all that, but it's just so frustrating because it's, it's message is just bullshit. Like it's just disingenuous, faux, positive thinking nonsense. And uh, and thank God this movie tanked um, <laughs> because it deserved to tank. Like I'm glad it didn't find an audience. Uh, you know, it, it it very much wants to be a children's movie, but it has none of the sort of the lightness or the grace or the playfulness and the magic of a children's movie. Right. It's so fucking didactic. Um, and kids just, love that. Yeah, people <laughs> really do. Um, and it just just rubber. St- it just like stamps this message down to your brain over and over and over again. And then it has the cowardice to have a villain played by Hugh Laurie say things that like you can tell the filmmakers actually think um they're they're like you know how he's like if the world ends it's because all the sorry you know sorry sad sacks out there gave up and didn't try to save it and you know we're the only you know uh country place in the in the universe where you have both starvation and obesity come on everyone because those are the same things those happen for the same reasons exactly um it's just it's just terrible like everything about it just made me so angry and so hateful and then, um, you know, it's almost like it was daring critics to give it a bad review as if, like, to give it a bad review would prove its point. Right. But I don't right. give a shit what this movie thinks about me, <laughs> so I'm happy to include it on my worst movies of 2015 list. That wraps up the worst movies of 2015 list. Um, we had the best 10. We had the worst five. If you have something you'd like to add, if you disagree, if you agree, you can go ahead and hit us up on Twitter. Jason is at... The Jason Leroy. And I am at Fight Balance. Um, be sure to stay tuned for more episodes of The Binge. We have one more episode coming out here in 2015. Then we're going to move on to 2016. Thank you so much for being fans. And thank you for listening. This has been, uh, we're both really excited about the show. We're, we're, we're really excited that 2015 led to the show happening. I don't think either of us had this in mind when the year began. And uh, we're excited to be ending it with the show as going strong in 2016. So and that couldn't be happening without all of you. So thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Binging on movies. Binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. There, there goes, goes the binge. binge.